Hello, everybody. Okay, and uh, welcome back to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story uh, adventure stream. <laughs> Change that wording all the time. But I appreciate you guys coming by. Uh, tonight, I'm sharing more of my tale. This is episode 78. That's so much story. Makes me think back and try to remember, you know, how long. I, I was I, I never really thought this would take more than fifty episodes. I thought that was being uh, overly ambitious, but yeah, we're we're well past that. We're on the flip side of uh, closer to a hundred at this point. Kind of cool. Um, today we're going to continue kind of from where we left off. How far we get is going to be determined uh, more on how much time we use. I have a lot written. In fact, I have been overly uh, motivated and inspired the past couple weeks. I have a lot more written than I normally do. Um, but sometimes when I'm writing it ahead of time, it's hard for me to judge how long it'll take to tell a certain section of the story. Um, there will be very much large amount of reading today. I have, I've written out a lot of this now. I normally, a lot of times, will just bullet point my ideas. Uh, I wrote out in a lot more detail, more from the perspective of somebody actually getting to read this. Clearly with multiple errors. Every time I read back through it, I find something I missed. Uh, but there'll be a lot of reading today, so I would be very interested afterwards uh, to hear your thoughts, those of you who've been with us for a while. On, uh, do you prefer when there's a lot of reading? Do you prefer when it's more improving? Even with improving, I have the storyline written, but the sometimes the minute-to-minute details just on the off the cuff. Uh, a lot of it's written in my head, but maybe not written out in words. This time, I want a little bit more in words. We will test it to see. Um, also, I made some adjustments to my software. Uh, the last few episodes, there have been a couple issues with folks uh, where sometimes when I my voice trails off a little bit, the last word of a sentence here and there may disappear. Um, I believe I have that fixed now. This is the first opportunity I've really had to try it. So I would, again, love to hear your feedback on that as well. Hopefully it will make it a, a more enjoyable uh, audio uh, so, let's see. Um, starting off, we'll brief recap. Uh, the last episode was really uh, dealt with Artis and her. I've been traveling east after Seraph, Deacon, Ugin, without knowing quite exactly where they've gone. As such, they've traveled through multiple different lands many of which their parents helped discover. I say that with air quotes, because of course the people living there already knew they were there. But, you know, parts of the map, if you will, that previous stories have brought those sections to what is known areas of Merge World. The story we're telling now is going to take us far, far outside of the realms we're experienced with. There's always a taste of that in every adventure. S still a lot of it 
centers around the Southern Kingdom's area. Certain sections of that, like Kingdom of Firemoon, Paxawal, Santriel, the Elven Kingdom, which we always do is there. Horum in the door. I stretch it out a little bit. This one's going to open up a lot more of the Merged Worlds map geography than I have done in a very long time, and I'm excited to bring in a lot of what's going to be on the east eastern section of the uh, Hanzo says, so far, the sound is good. So awesome. Happy to hear that. Um, as always, thank you for being here, by the way. And if you haven't already, it would be awesome if you would consider giving us a uh, uh, like on the channel, like of the video, if, you, if you're enjoying it. It would be very cool if you All right. So as they were traveling east, they, uh, well, artists in particular at what was the furthest east historically gone, this far south, um, Artis was surprised to run into Quintius, a young man she'd met back Serenity shortly before they left. Chances of him accidentally being here. Uh, little to zero, right? Artist was immediately suspicious, only to find out that no one else, it seemed, could see him except her. He has told her that she needs to basically, at least temporarily, give up the search for Seraph and instead head far to the north east where a danger is growing and if it is not dealt with soon it could lead to end, if not death, of Seraph and friends, as well as many of the people she loves back in Serenity. And reveals to her that he is, in fact, the magical artifact scepter that she took with her, that she found down in the treasure room of Serenity, that has been sitting there since long before her birth, with absolutely no explanation of what it is or what it does. And that made me very happy waiting for this moment, because I planted that. I planted it for this. Always intended to go to Mercy's child. Although I didn't know if Mercy's child was going to be male or female or not. At that time, we hadn't rolled the children. It was always intended to go to Mercy's child. One way or another. So, that's where we left off with that. Um, we are going to begin today... Going back to the Seraph section of the story, uh, you'll remember that the last thing they told were told that Captain Endian was going to take them to a place named Sharp Tooth Harbor. It was the next link in the chain, as it's come to be known. Chain is the link of the Ormanian resistance designed a way to protect and hide. Dina, who is, in fact, important. Major spoilers if you've not heard all the old stuff. Very important. So, uh, yeah. So, we're going to continue with that uh, story today. And whether or not we get back to ours and them will be based very much on time. All right. And to those of you who've been following on iTunes and Spotify, where this is available as a free audio podcast... Thank you very much as well. 
new followers pop up on both platforms, some likes, some reviews. So thank you very much for those of you who took a few minutes out of your personal time to write a review for yeah, Merged Worlds story. I really do appreciate your feedback and all all, all positive stuff I've been getting. Sharp Tooth Harbor. That's where we're headed to. Sharp Tooth Harbor is something I designed a very long time ago. But originally didn't know how I was going to fit it into the story. Because that happens. You know, I know where the end of the story ends, but some of the pieces between here and there, I'm still writing and coming up with new ideas. There's major plot points and things that are, I have to get to, I'm navigating to, but sometimes between here and there, I come up with a whole new idea or a story link or a character or something I want to throw in there. Not everything is written in stone. Sometimes for the better, it changes something I'm going to do later. The Sharp Tooth Harbor is a, something I designed a long time ago and have been waiting for an opportunity to bring it in. Uh, and this was an excellent way to do so. Now, I do have two new mini characters. Two characters that are going to be introduced today that I have minis painted for. But I apologize, I, I had to run up and do some errands. I didn't have time to set those up, so I will set them up when we get to that section of the story. For those of you who are watching the uh, video section uh, on YouTube of this, uh, it takes a second to load them up and you'll get a chance to look at them. Alrighty, so, Sharptooth Harbor. Uh, again, a lot of reading today. Sharptooth Harbor sat on an island in the Central Sea and it protruded from the water like a giant tooth or claw. So imagine if you would, literally like a mountain, almost like a mountain that comes out of the ground, is cylindrical, thinner, almost up like a big curved tooth. Maybe a little more curved than you'd expect. And at the base of that is the uh, is an island itself. Um, and the the island, because of that, is actually taller than it is wider. Uh, it, it, it implies that there's definitely... And there's some more smaller ones sticking out of the water around it. It's very rock like that. You know, so it's 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 like there's a bunch of these rocks coming out. And they are rock. They're not teeth of some ancient monster or anything. It is stone and dirt and so on. Um, but it is very, very high. And you can imagine the island itself being thinner. It's tall. Um, the harbor town itself, because of this, consisted largely on docks, planks, and scaffolding, uh, giving it a rather poor and thrown-together look. Uh, that was far from true, though. The harbor easily dealt with the regular influx of ships, and there were several inns, bars, and other businesses dotting the island. So, I want you to picture, if you would, what I've just described, and then around the island docks going off in every direction and ships pulled into those docks that instead of ships going in and out, they the docks built around them and those become basically buildings um, and the scaffolding and such going above that. So uh, sometimes as you're walking down a street, if you will, uh, you're walking across ships and then docks and then a business is a ship, but there's no way for that ship to get out of there anymore. The city is built out around it. So the dock system is very, very large. Island itself is narrow. It does stretch out into the water quite a bit. Um, the water uh, up close to the island was mighty treacherous to begin with because of the other rocks and pointy things and coral sticking out of the water. 
so this way, the docks have stretched out far enough that ships can easily come in and out, and the early boats and ships and buildings that would have been built right onto the docks are over a boat, and eventually the boat's taken apart and it becomes a regular building. A lot of that stuff has been there for a very long time. So Sharp Tooth Harbor existed before the merge. That's that's an important point to stress. So uh, it's drastically increased in size and you will say power since then. But as a location, it's been there for a very long time. Yes, fancy houseboats. Moment as I clean my glasses so I can see what I wrote. I a drink earlier and it went all over my face. Okay. Uh, let's see. So again, uh, throughout this, there will be several inns. Some may be a boat. There, there are a couple of those on the island itself. Um, and then multiple things like bars, stores, shops, marketplaces. It, a lot of that stuff exists directly from the ships. People live in those ships. And on the outskirts of other ships that do pull into what would be a normal docking system that expands beyond that, um, a lot of ships will literally just pull in and not unload their stuff. They'll sell directly from the ship. Um, make trade with other ships. So instead of going into the city, it's unloaded off one boat, loaded onto another one. Um, and just about anything that can be sold is sold in this harbor. If that open-ended, anything that could be feasibly sold is sold here. The Sharptooth Harbor created to a very special clientele. It was known as neutral ground. Thieves, pirates, and other ne'er-do-wells used it as a place of business, for trade, negotiations, and sanctuary from those who sought them. The island always seemed busy with a very hectic port. Uh, Sharptooth Harbor is very firmly proud of the fact that it is neutral ground. You do not bring your battles here. Um... Two pirates have a problem. I mean, if they want to get into a fist fight somewhere, that's fine. But there's no large-scale battles. The We'll talk about it a bit more. The, the, sh the island itself would see that that doesn't happen. And many of the other, many of the folks that live there would want to have that as well, right? You don't want to ruin that. If this is a place where I can come and I know I'm safe from anybody, I don't want that ruined for me or for anybody else because then it puts me at risk. So... It's one of those things where the community enforces it itself. You know, someone's breaking a rule. Some of the other uh, folks, I guess you could say, or organizations, groups, crews, and people might deal with it before the island even needs to. Make sure that that is not a problem that pops back up. So if you're on the run, it's a great place to be. Unless you're on the run from, you know, the island itself. You can end up on the wrong side of... Sharptooth Harbor, though it's hard to do. Any type of dry dock or repair area? Somewhat, I would say. I would say, yeah, there's going to be sections for that. Um, this is definitely not a place where ships are built. Uh, there's just not the kind of room nor supplies for that. With it being an island, almost any building supply, whether it be wood or stone, is how is it would have to be brought by ship. Um, what little natural resources there have either already been plundered very early on or are walled off in specific park-like areas where no one would be allowed to do that type of thing. Or where wealthy members and stuff may have that uh, area set aside as 
guards, ministers, so forth. So it is um, to do very large scale supplies and uh, repairs and stuff like that would be very hard because there's, you know, other than you build some on the water storage location for a lot of that stuff, it would be hard to do. But I'm sure that they have the capability to make short term repairs until you can get to a better dock or port that has that type of capabilities. Hello, Egg. Very first city, sorry. Um, so yes. The city guard, known as Knuckles by most, were many and skilled, and their ranks filled with races from elves to ogres. They kept the peace and tolerated no breaking of the laws of which there were very few, right? Not a lot of laws here, but the few they got are important. So when someone's walking along and they're wearing the outfit or dress of one of these knuckles, the guard, if you will, that, uh, that work for the island itself, they have freedom to do whatever they need to do and ask questions later. You know, they're not want to do that, right? But they will if they need to. If you are blatantly breaking a rule, uh, they have the authority to be executioner or jury judge, based on the situation that's going on. If you're being a threat to the island, they will negate the threat. And so the people that get those positions aren't are people that are entrusted with a lot. They're not crazy people. They're very level-headed and very skilled. You don't get hired to be one of these people and given that type of authority, unless you can back it up. Uh, and again, ranging from nearly any race you can think of, uh, if, there's, if you're tough enough, right, you get that type of position. High atop the mountain, looking over the island, was Sharptooth Keep. It was the home of Darok the Crazed, the lord of the island. He was an incredibly powerful sea mage, known as much for his skills as he was for his greed. Darok ruled Sharptooth Harbor with an iron fist. The whole island was a seedy, dangerous, and deadly port. So, Darok, which I haven't clarified his race, won't be seeing knowing that today, sits upon his keep running this place. I mean, he has people who basically run it for him, um, but he has a short temper. He's, he's the guy you don't want to get on the wrong side of. Um, as such, and because this is a neutral place, other kingdoms that are on the ocean, whether it be Corman or even Darstopia, any of those things, this is not their land. You don't come here. I mean, you can come here. You want to sell? Darsh could pull a ship up and sell some stuff. They're not going to send someone away that's business. If you show up looking for a criminal, you will be told to leave. That doesn't happen here, unless you're wanted by the island itself, and then you're in serious trouble. Because if that type of bounty gets on you, there's not really many places you can go that somebody's not going to know, hey, that person's going to get me a big reward if I bring them back to the island. So, when I say it's a safe place, other kingdoms know you don't go there looking for trouble. Uh, as a, what seems like a good-sized port, you'd think that a huge navy showing up would just pretty much easily be able to decimate it. That is not the case. Darok himself, very powerful sea mage, and there are many things from 
ele water elementals and air elementals and such that are in place in traps that can be activated uh, that could very easily and quickly ward off someone who's being a little bit too presumptuous in their ability to come in and do what they want to do. Um, and he's not the only mage there charge. You can assume he has apprentices and others that would work for him. From the bow of the ship, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen watched the island come into view. Even in the darkness, the many lights of the harbor lit up the view. So it's nighttime right now, a little overcast, not a lot of stars, but the whole island's lit up 24-7. It's a city that doesn't sleep. It looked pretty, Mugen said. I said Captain Indian, walking up behind them. It'll cut your heart out if you're not careful. Seraph looked at the captain angrily. He was still furious that Indian had sent Dina to such a dangerous place. All Indian would say was, dangerous for her, more dangerous for them. He did not elaborate further. Like Vegas, New York, that's a good example. Yeah. The ship pulled up to the dock smoothly. The crew were expert sailors, handpicked by Indian himself. The man has a fleet. He's going to make sure his capital ship has all the best people he can trust. Most of them ignored Seraph and his friends. It had been made quite clear their assistance wouldn't be needed. So this is a very different situation from where Artis and Maeve were on their ship, where people started jumping in and Maeve knew the ship and she's helping out and, and Ran was learning to participate and do what he needed to do and such. On this ship, it's like, now you just stay out of our way. doesn't matter if you're super strong and it might be helpful. You get in here, you mess something up, you're only going to slow us down. And if you slow us down, we're the ones who are going to get punished by the captain. So, you know, you got walk, you can leave, go around the ship as long as you're not in people's way, but don't be messing with stuff. Don't be offering to help. We don't need you. We have this running the way that it's supposed to. As the deckhands tied off the boat, the first mate went down the gangplank and paid the dock wardens. The captain said his ship visited often and should not have any issues. Still, Seraph was nervous, really couldn't afford any delays. Already weeks behind Dina. And like any dock, pull up, you're going to go down there. There's going to be people who walk up and down the docks who work for the city. You pay a tax or a fee to dock there. Tell them how long you're going to be there. Your reason for being there. And, you know, the reason is going to be specific. I got some goods I'm going to sell. Looking for, looking for a rest, going to restock some supplies, you know, visiting someone. They don't care that much as long as you pay and you behave, you know. They just jot something out on the paper in case... You know, down the road, Derek's like, this person caused problems. Why did they say they were here? Paper trail. Finally, the first mate returned and the crew was able to disembark. Seraph kept the hood pulled up to hide his easily recognizable white hair. Right? He's got that big mane of white hair. So he's been told to keep a hood up and down, toweled, so he doesn't stand out quite so much. There's not much you can do with Mugen. Uh, Deacon looks like relatively a regular dude, but dressed kind of nobly. A Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen accompanied the captain, being sure to stay close to them as the, he, they'd been directed. Even at this late hour, and I want to point out, it's around 2 o'clock in the morning at this point. 2 a.m.-ish. Even at this late hour, the docks were busy. They made their way through the crowds and down a busy street. And again, as I say street, it's a dock with buildings and stuff on the side, probably built to float shanties and over ships. Uh, each of them struggled not to be sick. The smell of the town was quite repugnant. 
After a few moments, Endian turned and entered a building, a bar named the Broken Tooth. This bar is a ship, basically, right? Um, the ship probably couldn't sail if it needed to. Sails and masts have probably been removed at this point, and the wood and all the other stuff been repurposed, but the shell of the ship is still the shape of it. Um, and it was a galley, so it's a very deep, wide, open space. A floor has been put inside, flattening it out a little bit easier, um, and definitely doors and stuff put in the side that normally would cause the boat to sink, but it's not going anywhere. It is firmly built into place. The bar couldn't have been more aptly named. The signs of past brawls and battles were everywhere. Broken chairs, chipped and cracked walls, the bar itself seemed sturdy, but every inch of it was carved with phrases and pictures that made the three young men blush. I will leave that up to your imagination. They go inside, a bar has been built, just tables. And I don't mean like this shrapnel of chairs. I mean, the chairs at the table, you could sit at them, but the backs might be broken off and arms broken off here. A table with only one. A stool that's very wobbly. You can tell where it's just been hastily put back together with a couple nails and some water glue. You know, it, everything looks beat up. It is not a fancy bar, of which there are some very high-class bars and inns that exist on this island. They are few but expensive. There is a lot more of the middle to lower class because uh, a lot of the folks that come here aren't looking to shell out a lot of cash. Captain Endian motioned for them to sit at a table. So they walked in. There's a table. It's like, we're going to sit at this one. He points to this one here. You know, it doesn't look like you picked that one on purpose. It's like, yeah, sit here. So there's four chairs that look like they could hold us. We'll sit there. After a few moments, a barmaid came out uh, with, with uh, four mugs of some kind of alcohol. They didn't make an order. It's like the place sells one thing is kind of the assumption. Barmaid comes out, brings four big pint glasses, sets them on the table, one in front of everybody. Taking a drink, both Seraph and Deacon began coughing. It was ungodly strong and tasted worse than the city smelled. The captain looked at them disapprovingly. You can imagine, like, come on now, it's a, drink your beer, you know? They're like, ugh, ugh, this is horrible. Because not that they have probably had some grog of some kind in their adventure so far. They probably didn't get a lot of low-class alcohol growing up, right? You're, even though Seraph's not technically royalty, he's basically a prince of the temple. You can almost say it that way. They're going to have good quality wines and meads and stuff like that. If they do go to one of the inns of uh, Serenity, it's probably going to be one that Seamus owns, which also has good... They don't get a lot of swill. This is swill. And not just swill. Very strong, take the paint off that metal, remove the rust kind of strong swill. And it's a little bit more than they're uh, used to having. So the captain looks at him disapproving. But his face quickly grew into a smile as he turned to look at Mugen. The little gully beside him was happily slurping up his drink at the rate, he, and at his current rate, he was going to be done before anyone. He stopped long enough to let out a huge belch that echoed through the room. With a chuckle, the captain gave him a slap on the back. And Mugen looked up at him, his face beaming with foam all around his mouth and in his facial hair. He's got that little goatee thing going on. So you can imagine just foam all up in there. He's, for him, it's a cup like this. That's, that's enough to feed well, him. And he's just slugging it back. They didn't have to wait long before a man walked out of a back room and headed towards them. 
He was a human and looked to be about 50 years in age. His left eye was gone, and a huge scar ran through it, ran through the empty socket. So there's no patch or anything, it's just an empty socket with a big scar coming jagged through it. He lost it, obviously, through something kind of savage. Um, and he comes out of the room directly towards Endian. So he's coming to see Endian. Endian hasn't announced himself. The barmaid didn't ask any names. But this man is coming out, clearly, to talk to Endian. You can imagine in a place like this, there's probably people watching. Peepholes, magic, whatever the case may be. They're probably keeping an eye on who comes in and out. Well, Captain, said the man to Endian, hadn't expected you around these parts so, so soon. Thought you were headed down Thorman Way. Plans changed, unfortunately, Endian replied. Had to come back to deal with some issues personally. I need to speak to a man about a barracuda. A red one. The man's remaining eye opened in surprise. Uh, he said nervously. I, 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 I believe that was already sold, sir. I know, replied Endian coolly. I need to speak to him anyways. The man grew visibly uncomfortable. And leaning in, in a slightly quieter voice, said, uh, The rules, sir. I don't want to ask you again, interrupted the captain. Even, in his, even Seraph and his friends grew uncomfortable. The captain hadn't moved or raised his voice, yet there was no missing the dangerous threat within. The man swallowed hard. Aye, sir, I'll, I'll see what I can do, before returning to the back room. You can imagine that they're like watching this, like, okay, this type of conversation, we don't understand what's going on. Endian would have given them no information other than stay close, shut up, and do what I tell you. That probably would have been stressed. Because you can imagine that in this, what they're doing right now is against the rules of how the chain works. You're not supposed to know where the next person, you know, we only know so much of my job is to get Dina to this person. They're going to take it from there. Get her from this person, protect her to get to this person, and then my job is done. My job is at that point to either disappear or watch to make sure no one else is trying to follow her, right? That's the next step. If there's signs of Oramon or anyone else, they're going to be watching for that. Important. Finish your drinks, boys, said the captain quietly. There be prying eyes about. The men knew better than to look around. In other words, he's implying, hey, you know, there's eyes here. As you can imagine, Endian is well known. One of the more lucrative pirates sailing the Southern Seas. So, or Central Sea, I should say. So he's known. This is a relative celebrity, you could say, who's came in here and sat down. People are going to notice that to begin with. Most people know he's not someone you mess with, but you still got to be careful. So again, the men knew better than to look around to try to see who's looking. That's foolish. Sarah did his best to look casual while he tried to choke down his drink. He was insanely jealous when he saw Deacon slowly slide his mug over towards the eagerly awaiting Mugen. Mugen's like, oh yeah. Because this is done, Mugen's now into his second cup. Deacon's like, yeah, sure, you can have mine. Pulls the empty one over. Ah, I'll nurse this empty cup for a few minutes. Minor concern. Heavy alcohol. What kind of effect is that going to have? Finally, Endian, out of nowhere, stood up. 
told them to rise and led them out of the bar and further into the city. The streets were alive with music and dancing, as well as other acts better left to private. There was gambling, fighting, and debauchery everywhere. Worst of all, though, were the watchers, the quiet ones, sitting or standing off to themselves. These were the dangerous ones, the ones who knew how to kill. So if you're looking for someone for your crew, or maybe you need pirates to deal with something, or an assassin, or a kidnap. This is the place you go to hire people. That's what this, this is where the people are that do the things you need them to do. Um, and you can see that there's the, some folk who may not look the scariest are just quietly sitting there, standing there, leaning against a wall. But with everything going around them, they're completely comfortable and confident standing there. There's no concern for them. It's because they know if something goes down, they're not the one who's going to have a problem walking away. Again, Seraph grew frustrated that Dina would have ever been brought here. Hell, he didn't want Deacon or Mugen in this kind of place. Lost in his thoughts, he didn't notice that Deacon had stopped in front of him and nearly knocked his friend over, running into him. He looked up at the sign on the building before where they'd stopped. A sign that said, the red corset. Turning to Andean, Seraph said, uh, This is a close your mouths and smile, lads. Being watched, Andean said. With the flourish, he waved towards the door like he was showing off the place. So he's not trying to be seen. He's like, Ah, yes, see this here. Come on. Then he opened the door and waved them inside. No other choice. They did as they were told. To say the establishment was busy would be an understatement. It was much larger inside than they would have thought looking at it from the outside. Velvet-covered couches and large pillows were everywhere. Several large brutes stood near the doors, obviously security. There was a large staircase that led upstairs to private rooms, and a beautiful chandelier hung from the ceiling. And everywhere, on the pillows, on the chairs... And walking around were beautiful women of many races. Humans, elves, dwarves, halflings, even a few half-orcs and a minotaur, without a single article of clothing on their bodies. Seraph could not believe this. His heart froze, afraid he'd see Dina there, forced into this kind of life. The mouse is here. Ashley says it's the mouse is here, here in... Knoxville, Tennessee, where we are, that's a, an adult club. <laughs> Deacon felt the tug on his sleeve, and he looked down into Mugen's wide and confused eyes. St Deacon! These ladies don't got no clothes! I know, Deacon replied, trying to be subtle. Did somebody steal them? Should I give them the monies? No, whispered Deacon quietly. Keep your purse hidden. It's not safe here. Mugen's eyes narrowed as he scanned the room suspiciously, his hand not far from his pistol. Again, as I mentioned in previous episodes, they, had, they were teaching Mugen the concept of money. Because money didn't exist in New Gully. In New Gully, everything was basically trade and people worked for the con. Um, you know, food was prepared by folks and such and watched over and the king made sure that everybody had what they needed to survive as comfortably as possible. So the act of money 
buying things, you know, you're trading something fancy. I'll trade you this knife for that you know, basket of food, or I'll trade you this pretty ring I found for that cool knife you have. That type of bartering and trade happened all the time. But currency doesn't really exist. Um, Fig would have gathered all of that kind of stuff up. Anything that was of value, anything that was gems, jewelry, money, stuff that you would take stuff away from people. But if they came to him like, what do we do with this? He would take it if he recognized the value of it. And he did use that to trade with the centaurs that lived north of New Gully, just outside the Dead Magic Zone, um, trading for some goods and things in the early days that they couldn't really get a hold of until they got settled. Um, the link between the centaurs and New Gully has actually grown quite strong over the years, um, and it's considered trade to the point that even some of the centaur will come slightly into New Gully, not the city, but into the Dead Magic Zone, even though it makes them uncomfortable, to do some of the trading. Um, to be honest, they're larger and it's easier for them to carry stuff than it would be for the gullies to carry it all the way out. So they're teaching him the concept of money. And I mentioned before that Fig gave him a pouch full of coins and some gems and jewelry in it, saying, hey, you're going to need this out there in the world. If you need things, you trade this for them. And they're trying to teach him the value of these coins, right? So he sees all these poor ladies who look like their clothes were stolen, and he's like, should I give them a monies? Do they need help? Because we, these are monies. This is a monies. And like, well, that's a silver monies and that's a gold monies. Yeah, but it's a monies. Yeah, but gold monies is worth more than silver monies. But I have one gold monies and one silver monies. They're both one. You know, trying to explain that concept of, of uh, currency and such. So when he's like, should I take out my wallet and help these people? Deacon's like, no, do not pull your wallet out in a place like this. It will be disappearing quickly. So it's not safe here. So I mean, he's like, we're in danger. <laughs> his hands are very close to his pistol like, what's going on? So Moog is on, Moog is on the case. Moogan. Uh, let's see. Captain squealed a young human lass, rushing up to Endian. Hadn't expected you back so soon. Ah, Melody, he smiled, wrapping an arm around the girl. You know I can't stay away from you ladies for too long now. The girl giggled as the captain slapped her bottom. Who are your friends? Oh, no, who are your friends? Came another voice. A tan-skinned elven woman had slipped up beside Seraph. Never seen boys like this before. Endian laughed. Well, these boys are the newest members of my crew. Their first time in harbor. Thought I'd show them around. Maybe it'll be the first time for many things tonight, the elven girl, elven girl whispered, gently stroking Seraph's cheek. Perhaps, said Endian, looking amused. But first, of course, I'll need to pay me respects to the lady. She around? I said Melody. She's in her office. I'll take ye. You'll be... She'll be glad to see you. Taking his, taking his hand, the girl led him through the crowd towards a door at the back of the room. Seraph carefully stepped around the elf and led his friends after the captain. So when I described this, there are also, of course, customers here as well. I realize I didn't put that in there, but I want to stress that. Not just a big room full of women. There are customers. And it's not just women working there either, although it's a vast majority. There would be men working there as well. Um, so, again, crowd-wise, it's a, it's a very busy place. When I say there's couches and pillows, ladies and folks on them, they're usually not on there alone. There's private rooms upstairs for those who have more money. 
All right, so let's see. Next to the door stood an, so they, they're led to a door near the, uh, under the stairs. So the stairs goes up one side. They can see a railing that would go all the way around the room, almost in a moon shape. There's rooms in that. This is an actual building, not an old ship that's been converted. This was literally built for this. Although you can see the signs of where a lot of this wood was either designed to fit that nautical theme, or it, a lot of it could be wood repurposed from other ships. When you see the railing that goes around the top of the stairs, it's the kind of railing you'd expect to see on a ship. You know what I mean? There's a chandelier up there that's very fancy, but it's the chandelier you might have found in a fancy ship. I mean, because you can find those in wealthy type kind of things. So it definitely either has that nautical feel on purpose or because that's what they were able to get a hold of when they were building it. So they led past the base of the stairs, <coughs> excuse me, towards a door set against the back wall. Next to the door stood an unusually large brute. By appearance, it was clear there was ogre in his blood. Seeing the captain, he nodded respectfully and then knocked on the door. After a moment, he must have received some kind of response because he nodded and motioned them through. I want to stress that Seraph heard nothing. Uh, of everyone here, Seraph's hearing is incredibly well. Granted, there's an incredibly loud crowd, loud for many reasons, um, but a loud crowd in this room. Um, and his focus is clearly not on the listening right now because he's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, Mugen just doesn't understand quite what's going on. Seraph and Deacon understand it. Both would probably be shy and nervous in the situation, raised as they were, never quite being in a place like this. Um, but I would think that Seraph, with his mother being a clear... In this moment, he's like, what would my mother think knowing I'm standing here? You know, Deacon would be like, well, I'd probably tell me to behave, and Mom would tell me to behave. You know, human, it's not as looked at. But Seraph being who he is, you know, uh, Endian opened the door and entered, followed by the others. The door closed gently behind them. The room was elegantly furnished with items and decorations of obvious value. When they walk in, it is an office. And then there's one of those little folding walls uh, that you see a lot of times in Asian households and such that separate the room, but it's a movable wall. And you can see that behind it, there's a large bed. This, this is probably an office slash bedroom for whoever this person is. Before them sat a beautifully a beautiful red wooden desk, and seating behind it was an even more beautiful half-elven woman. She looked, took several moments looking over Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen, and finally she looked at Endian, and her eyes narrowed. You shouldn't be here, she said, obviously angry. I said the captain, taking the only seat before her. Situations have changed. The woman stood and leaned towards him. And you tried to reach out to him? You? You were never to meet. This goes against everything. Clearly furious. Speak not to me of rules I created, he replied. You know what I've done to create the chain. You more than any other know what this means to me. Do you think I'd be here if it was anything less than the most utmost importance? The two stared each other down for several minutes. Finally, she sat back down. No, no, I suppose not. 
Again, she looked at the three other men in the room. And who are they that you would bring them into this? They, my dear, are why I'm here. Turning to them, he said, gentlemen, let me introduce to you Madame Shiana, the owner of this fine establishment and the next link in the chain. Shiana looked at him angry again. You take too many chances. Yes, I do. But it must be so. And why do you seek the Barracuda? Captain stared at her a moment. Because I need to know where she went. Shiana immediately rose to her feet again. Absolutely not! For safety is paramount. It's everything. No, it shall not happen, Indian. Not even for you. I'm going to take just a quick moment here. And I'm going to pull up this young lady looks like. This is one of the two characters I'm introducing who, well, hope to be a more active member. This harbor, obviously, I hope the amount of detail I'm putting into it, but you know that this is a place that will pop up in Merge Worlds again. Even not in this immediate story, it's definitely a place I would uh, like to put some stories in from a DMing point of view. This would be an amazing place to start an adventure, right? Imagine that. You're level one, whatever you are. You're pirates. Maybe you've got your reasons from being gone from wherever you're gone, but you're here. You made your way here, and you're looking for work. What a great central hub that this could be for adventures, whether it's sea adventures, land adventures, ships, underwater. Taking a place like this and all the different businesses, you can imagine that there'd be factions here, alliances that could be made that would anger other factions. Um, then there's the guy up in the keep on top, the mage. Maybe he end up getting notice for work for him. Um, I could see this very easily being a very interesting place to start some characters at and use as a central hub for a while until they raise up in level and it becomes time for them to go out on their own. Um, so as I designed this forever ago, that's kind of how I imagined it to be and why I have so many... Um, So many details. Now, for some reason, yep, for me. So where's M? I could have sworn I had there. I had her 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 character saved. Give me a moment. Well. Um. So yeah, anyways, I thought that this would be a good place to potentially run characters from. Um, I've got ideas for factions and things, and even if I end up run if I don't end up running characters out of here, for story-wise, I've always hoped that down the road I would be able to um branch out and have other types of characters. You know what I mean? Other story that may not be centric around the characters we've talked about. Um, there could be a point where um There could be a part when you get to um, all of this story for these main characters is done, and now it's time for me to introduce maybe a whole new group of adventurers out to do their own thing. 
You know what I mean? Maybe they're out there uh, on their own storyline that has nothing to do with any of the characters we've ever messed with, much like the characters I'm running in my my wife and friends, Jim and Smashley's characters. Um, I run them. They're not really associated with that. Ah, there we go. I had to find her. I had it written under someone different. There she is. Lady Shiana. Took me a moment to finally find the picture. I had it under L. I was looking for a mistress. So Lady Shiana owns this brothel. Sure, Queen. That'd be a good idea. Exactly. Stuff like that. Lady Shiana. We'll leave her up here for a minute. Those of you listening on the audio version, I will have her up on the website. The last thing she said, absolutely not. Her safety is paramount. It is everything. No, it shall not happen, Andian, not even for you. Before either could speak again, Seraph stepped forward. My lady, I apologize for all of this. The captain has explained how important this is to the rebellion. We have traveled far. No disrespect to you, but I assure you, we will not be leaving this harbor until we know where Dina has been. Very calm, he's straight, and he's to the point. Not trying to be overly emotional, he's trying to seem here. This is why this is. The room stood in comfortable, uncomfortable silence. Shiana turned to Endian. Who is this boy that speaks to me so? And who would dare speak of her? Endian turned to Seraph and said, Take back your hood, son. Remember, he's got his hood up. You can't really see much of him. Seraph did as he was been told, pulling back his hood and letting his long white hair fall about his shoulders. This, Shiana, said Endian, is Seraph Bloodborne of Seredity, son of Artemis Silverstar, and the man our dear Dina loved. Shiana slowly sat back down, her face clearly a mask of shock. She continued to look Seraph over from top to bottom several times. You are sure? He finally asked Endian, who nodded in reply. And you approve of this? I do, Endian replied without hesitation. Chiana smiled. Every time I think this world has shown me everything it can, find a new surprise, chuckles. Turning back to Sarah, she said, She spoke of you, you know. She said she knew you'd be looking for. Said you'd fight the gods themselves if they stood between you. I see. She was correct. Andian introduced Deacon and Mugen and shared their story, all of the story of how they came to get there, what they'd done for Andian, the crystals, the whole thing. He left out no details. She was quite impressed with what they'd been through already. Once the story had been told, she said, truly a remar remarkable tale, and one that is far from over. Dina left the harbor weeks ago, where I do not know. Only the Barracuda knows that. I was only to keep her hidden till it was time for her to move on. So again, the concept is that Dina and her family would have been hidden here. Probably not in the front room, clearly, but living in, in, in one of the many rooms and hidden passageways behind this building um, where they could be kept safe until it was time to move them out. And have them just out wandering the streets, obviously. To Andy and she said, you've convinced me, so I'll help you meet him. 
Whether or not he'll be as forthcoming, do not know. Every link in the chain has their own reasons why Dina's life is so important to them. To each of us, her safety is everything. He may be unwilling to break the chain. Noting Seraph's disappointment, she added, But you've earned the approval of Endian here, and I'd thought that not possible. So there is a chance. So she says she's going to reach out to the Barracuda on their behalf, see what they can find out. Probably expects it to take at least a day to get a response. So they, they say, okay, we're going to be returning to the ship. We'll be staying on the ship. they got no reason to wander around at this point. So bidding a goodbye, they head on out. The captain has to let Melody know he'll be back another time, which is very, very sad to hear. They make their way out of the inn and, and back towards their ship. Once they get back there, they have a chance to ask a few different questions about the city. Some of the stuff I've told you already. They probably, now that they've seen it, have some more questions. They got to see the guards walking up and down the street. They got to see the caliber of what type of people and such is going on here. So it gave them some additional questions about the city, and they would have had a chance to discuss that. Um, they also ask him why he's called the ask uh, the Captain Indian why the man they're looking for is called the Barracuda. Uh, Andian, all he'll do is chuckle and say, you'll see. So the day is going to go by without incident. It's going to go by pretty quickly. They're just going to stay there. And I mean the whole day goes by. Get some rest, because by this point it's a couple hours later. It's probably 4 or 5 a.m. They get some sleep, sleep through the day. The captain says, we probably won't hear anything until after the sun goes down. So, you know, eat, hang out on the ship. My people are going to have limited leave. Uh, first mate and such can be looking for some basic supplies, keep them prepped, because they're hoping to get information so they can head out of here as quickly as they can, right? If they get, in fact, the location of where Dina has gone, Endian is going to go after her. Because at this point, it's not that Indians joined the group, and I want to stress that. If it gets to a point where they have to, you know, go on land, will he abandon the ship and go after it? Well, that's waiting to be seen, but from this point, he's still their way of getting around. If they figure out where she is, she would have had to leave here by ship. He's the only chance they have of moving forward. So it would have been set up, you know, that kind of a situation. That evening, a sailor returns from shore leave. And I'm doing finger quotes again. A couple of sailors have been given leave to go out. Some of them went to the bars and had drinks. Some of them went out and did other things. And a couple of them would have gone to the brothel. When I say he returns from shore leave, one of them, like the rest, would have been going out there looking like he's just going out with some time, but he's really going there to get a message, and he returns from the ship. They had received a message, he brought back a message from Shiana, not written down, voice, uh, that they are to meet the Barracuda on a gambling ship known as the Blackjack. Indian and, the piece, Indian and them are like, okay, cool, they prep up, they get their dressed on, and they're going to go that way. Now, I'm going to go back a step and remind of something I said a few moments ago. Shiana said that they were never to meet. So, technically, they've never met each other. Or at least, not in person. That's not to say they may not have seen each other from across the room or something. They've never met kind of a thing. Um, and that's part of the chain, right? Technically, he gets her to Shiana. Shiana's link in the chain is connecting her with the Barracuda. 
his link does not connect to that. Give a chain, a circle here. So he is the one, Endian, who set up and started the whole chain. He has more knowledge about its moving parts and pieces and how it works than probably anyone else in it. He, along with some of the leaders of the Ormanian resistance, some of which we've not yet met, but would also be his caliper involved. There are several of them that together with Endian set this whole thing up. So he knows of the Barracuda. Because let's be honest, before he's going to bring Dina to a place like this, he's got to know that there's someone who's going to get her out of here when the time comes. How and where and when, that's fine. You, you make that arrangement. I just need to know who. Sorry for the sounds there. I had to mute the microphone while I sneezed across my face. So they wait a little while, because they don't want to just leave as soon as this guy gets back. There's a time they're supposed to meet. But again, they leave the ship. Now Seraph's got his hood pulled all up again, and trying, doing his best to stay cowled, if you will, which isn't out of the ordinary here. I'm sure a lot of people are moving around not letting their face be seen. Everybody has enemies, especially here. They make their way to a completely different section of the harbor. So as they got off their ship, let's just say they went left. This is right. So they're going different directions around. So if we wanted to look at it, the gambling ship they're going to is directly opposite of where Shiana's brothel is. So the mountains in between them, right? And for the record, there are things burrowed into the tunnel. There are buildings and such and stairs that go inside to get up uh, large ways to get stuff moved up, probably even a little bit of mining, whatever in there. Um, probably all picked clean by this point. Um, there may be a tunnel through there to be able to travel without having to walk all the way around the mountain. It is still an island. It's not a tiny thing. It's still a good-sized island. But these are on opposite things, far apart from each other, in hopes that they are harder to link. You know, they're right next to each other. It's a little bit easier to, to say, hmm, what are they in league with? So they go to the ship. And again, it's a large ship. Very large. And they get inside, and again, it's another one of those ones that's clearly been here a while and isn't going anywhere. They go inside, and they can see that it's a large gambling ship. There's people playing cards, dice. There's probably some other stuff going on, different types of games and things. Um, and the first thing I notice is that the place is clearly run by goblins. Uh, the, the, the dealers, the people running the stuff, all the, again, big brutes of all sorts of races. Everybody, when I say brutes, that's their security. That's not necessarily island security, but in this situation it is. This ship is owned and run by the uh, uh, Garrock himself. So, this gets city protection, but it's mostly run by goblins, except he has probably some dealers and barmaids and stuff who deliver drinks and stuff of different races, but majority of people are clearly goblins. Money makers. Andean you know, makes his way over to a card table and sits down, begins playing some card. Maybe it's a blackjack table, poker, whatever the case may be. Some type of game. But the other the other three stand around him like they're bodyguards. It's kind of the 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 illusion they're supposed to be giving off in this situation. I'm the captain of the ship. I'm gonna go do some gambling, but I'm not gonna go by myself. You three are here to protect me. While you've got your weapons on, while you're standing there. Well, two and a half. They're gonna, people, most people are going to look at Mugen and go, why is there a gully dwarf here with a hammer? Like, what's this gully dwarf going to do? A lot, actually, but they don't know that, right? 
He sits at the card table and plays cards for 20 minutes. And clearly knows how to play. He's actually ahead. Um, when after about 20 to 30 minutes, a goblin approaches him, well-dressed goblin, and lets him know that the captain has been invited to a private game, a higher stakes game. And is he interested? Endian makes a show of saying, well, yeah, I, uh, I have some spare coin to, to come up with. Sure, I would be interested in a higher stakes private game. The goblin smiles and he points and he, a young lady, young lady who's a barmaid or something, escorts them to a door in the wall and, and into a back room. They're led through that door and inside they can, it goes like almost like a little tunnel, little holes in the side. And as Seraph is going through this with his hearing, he knows there's people in there and he can hear the uh, straining of a crossbow when he, when he hears one. He knows there's people in these bullet holes who could be shooting out at any time should they need to. They get into the room, and the room itself is average size room. 20 feet, 20 feet. Good-sized little room. And in the center of the room, just a little bit past the center, is a small table. And sitting behind it is a small man. Now, he looks physically, proportionately, like a large halfling. A halfling that's a bit big for a halfling. But the proportions just don't seem completely correct. I'll give you an example, because I have a picture of I have a barracuda for you as well. One moment. Him, I know where he is. Right? He's under the barracuda. Not good at alphabetizing. Learn that about me. The Barracuda. So he he's short like a halfling, but he's taller than a halfling. If you understand what I'm saying, halflings, when you look at their physical side, they don't look just like little people. They got the large so forth. His arms and hands seem a little bit too large for his body, just like his feet do. His ears seem a bit too big, and his eyes are a little bit too far apart. But he has the overall kind of shape of a halfling. They walk in, and he's sitting behind the table. These four men come walking in. And before they can say anything, he casually and confidently says, I should kill you where you stand. As he says that. You tell, as he does that, his teeth are jagged and pointed. Whether they're natural or filed that way, it's hard to tell. Yet, you have not, replied Endian. Shrink this picture. A little bit. The man slammed his hand on the table angrily. None of your cocky bullshit today, pirate. You know better than this. Better than anyone. The fact you've involved Shiana only makes this worse. The man began to walk around the table towards them, and Seraph noticed that even Endian took a step back. Seraph realized he needed to keep this from escalating quickly. Seraph quickly stepped between the men, surprising them both. He pulled back his hood and said, My name is Seraph Bloodborne, and both the captain and Shiana have acted on my request. I'm looking for Dina. The man known as the Barracuda stood there, clenching and unclenching his hands. He was clearly still very angry, but now was also dealing with some form of internal struggle. Finally, he stepped back a few paces, visibly calming. A bit. I know who you are, boy, and why you've come. 
I applaud you, your tenacity. I really do. But I can't help you. Sheriff looks at him and is like, I know you've sworn to protect her, and I cannot begin to tell you how much that means to me. Woman I love is out there, and she's in danger right now. I have to find her. I came here because I was told you could help me. And I pray you do. The way you decide, I'm not giving up. I'm going to find her. You and your friends stand out like a sore thumb, the Barracuda wrote. I knew you were here within five minutes of your foot touching the dock. You were only going to put more danger on her. I cannot allow you to do that. And again, Seraph definitely has a look about him. It's going to let him stand out. Ugin sure doesn't help about that. We've talked about that a lot in this section of the story. And it's true. The second the ship pulls up and weird-looking people walk off, a message came to him very quickly. You'd think that he'd leave messages, hey, Captain Endian pops up, I need to know why. He knows about Endian's link in the chain. After they get Dina to where they are, as I said, some people's job is to watch and make sure no one follows. So he's like, you're, you're just going to make more trouble. I can't allow you to do that. Now, this little guy is... Probably four and a half tall tops. A little less than that. But he definitely has an aura of pure confidence. Like, he's talking like, listen, this is just how it has to be. There's no wavering in here. And very quickly in his talk, in his speech, in his demeanor, unlike Shiana, who is upset, but then reasonable, he just has that, you've hit a wall. Doesn't matter what you say, you're not going past it. So... There's that feeling almost immediately. And Seraph probably tries to blurt out a few words. Endian tries to speak on his behalf. Thing comes out. And each time it's like, no, it's not going to happen. There's nothing you can say that is going to let me tell you where I've sent her. It is too dangerous. And I don't care who you think you are. It doesn't matter as much as my protection of this. And again, like everyone... They have their own reasons why Dina is important to them. And I'm going to be honest, most of the time, you are not going to find out what they are. Seraph's not going to find out. You aren't going to find out. A couple of them you may. Endian we did, obviously. We talked about his history. Why does he matter to Shiana and the Barracuda? They have their own reasons. for Maybe one day. After a while of going back and forth and trying to convince them that what they're trying to do is help her. Trying to protect her. They know she's in danger, but they're like, hey, with us. And they take, this is the Prince of Firemoon. We all know what his parent, his father's capable of. He's freaking king. He's a hero of the world kind of stuff. A lot of people know about him, the people he's got on there. Sarah's parents, you know about Sarah's parents and their friends. Now they've saved the world 50 freaking times. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows, even if you've never been to Serenity, you know what Serenity is. I can guarantee you that... Everyone in Sharptooth Harbor has heard of Serenity. Has heard of Mercy and Artemis and Dandy. They probably know way more about Darsh just because he's much closer and he's going to be in their circle of existence. They're pirates. They might be messing with some of his ships and vice versa. If he's out hunting pirates, it might be some of their ships that get in trouble. Even though we've stressed that Endian tries to stay out of Darsh's way. Barracuda, maybe not so much. 
But while they might know a decent amount about Artemis, Mercy, and so on, and they probably know a decent amount of the Kingdom of Firemoon, I can guarantee you he knows a whole lot more about the Black Rose. Black Rose, someone of her stature and her reach at this point. That's information that people in this town definitely like to have. That part's, of course, for another time. But I wanted to point that out. The exact kind of place Black Rose might do some dealings. Goes on and on without any luck. Finally, Seraph sighed. He was getting tired of this. Enough of this, he said. As much as I appreciate what you've done, I am honestly getting tired of other people deciding what is best for me and best for Dina. Until she tells me herself she doesn't want me, I will do everything in my power to be with her. Help me or don't. That is your choice. Don't get in my way. Barracuda once again began to walk closer to him. Boy, it's because she loves you you're still breathing. Don't waste this gift. Seraph looked him in the eyes a moment and then shook his head. Let's go, Indian. He's not going to help us. Seraph began to turn away. The little man rushed forward and grabbed his wrist. Sorry, lad. You're not going anywhere. Seraph tried to pull his hand away. Barracuda's grip was like iron and did not budge. Now you can imagine he didn't probably use all of his strength. The little guy, he's not trying to fling him across the room kind of thing. But he uses it, and his, his hand is not moving. This little dude is clearly stronger than he appears he should be. His grip tightens on Sarah's wrist. And with concern at this point, this little strong guy is straight up going to try to stop me from leaving. Seraph quickly reaches over with his other hand and then using his strength, spins, lifting the guy off the ground and tossing him back, like literally spinning and then releasing the guy. Where he hits that round table and it flips over. The barracuda goes rolling back in the direction that he came from. The barracuda rose, rises to his feet, wiping a small amount of blood from his lip. He smiled, showing his razor-sharp teeth. Strong boy. In a different world, I'd buy you a drink. His body began to shift and grow, transforming. Within just a couple of moments, he had more than doubled in size. His skin took on a gray-scaled look, and his head had elongated, changing to resemble some type of long-jawed shark-type kind of creature. So he's not necessarily a barracuda, but he's got, like, it literally elongates, so it looks like a giant shark with an elongated mouth. It was like a shark-fish combo with jagged teeth. So whether he's a were-creature or this is a natural form of whatever he is, at this moment, no one there knows. But he transformed into someone bigger than Seraph, uh, clearly strong. Like, he's just bulk. He's what you'd expect from a street shark, the old 80s cartoon, if you will. Pops up. The Barracuda tossed the table to the side and marched towards Seraph. Seraph readied himself and was able to dodge the huge fist that swung at him. 
Seraph does not draw a weapon. We'll begin by saying that. The Barracuda, at this point, has no weapons in his hands. Uh, if you look at the little mini I got for him here, I did put a little knife on his on his uh, belt just because I thought, you know, he'd probably have something of that nature, nothing else to cut up food. But the Barracuda does not carry a weapon for any type of uh, combat purposes because that's what he is. He's got incredibly talon claws. His teeth are super... He's bigger now. And he's very, very strong. But unarmed, Seraph, in good conscience, could not draw a weapon against an unarmed man. That's not the way he was raised. So Seraph's going to basically try to take him unarmed. Now, of course, immediately, Deacon and Mugen begin to try to rush forward. Because here's their friend being attacked by this big fish thing. We're going to call him a shark thing. But Endian gets between them and holds them back. And makes it quite clear very quickly... Do not get involved with this, or we're all dead. They still have to get out of here. While they're upset, Indian makes sense. He's like, listen, you've got to let him do this. If he doesn't survive this, then there's no way he's going to make it anywhere anyways. The fight begins, and as it's going on, it's much the same thing. Seraph is clearly faster. And... As he's watching, he's trying to grab or claw. He's very much of a brawler, wrestler type kind of thing, the Barracuda is. Seraph's just staying out of his way. And he may occasionally be coming in with a punch or some of his own, but more often than not, he's trying to dodge out of the way. Um, because, you know, he's kind of testing out the opponent, right? And taught that. Don't just give up everything at the beginning. But at the same time, so is the Barracuda. And... Occasionally, the Barracuda manages to slip in. Seraph, like everyone else, has his own tells, and the Barracuda is a very experienced fighter. So after just a couple moments, everybody's tra traded a couple of blows, but nothing major. Seraph goes to slide away from another big punch sent by the Barracuda, but the Barracuda quickly switches direction, and using his shoulder, basically body checks Seraph. Ever seen hockey? He's just out of nowhere, just using his shoulder, hits him hard. And Seraph wasn't expecting it. He wasn't on full balance because he was trying to dodge out of the way. And he stumbles backward, hitting the wall hard. And it knocks the wind out of him. Barracuda takes advantage of this. And rushes forward and hits him in the stomach really, really hard. Like a solidly landed punch. And the wind just rushes out of Seraph's lungs. Barracuda grabs him by his arms, right underneath the armpit, right around the shoulders, and slams him against the wall a couple of times. Seraph can't help but just feel himself being thwacked against the wall. It's all he can do to keep his head from hitting the rock. Or wood, I should say. And why if all of a sudden I thought he was in a cave. <laughs> it's wood. Barracuda leans in close to his face and says, I smell your fear, boy. Too bad it has to be this way. Seraph looked at the man's eyes and his face himself, looked in his face, and almost sees it like, you know, almost a gloating. Hey, sorry it had to be like this. Seraph gets angry. His eyes begin to take on that color of red that's only happened a few times, and as he speaks, he can feel his fangs growing longer in his mouth. The only fear you smell, he snarled, is the fear of letting go. Seraph grabbed the Barracuda's wrists and began to slowly raise the man's hands from him. He grabs him and starts pulling them off. 
barricade's face strained as he tries to hold him. But Seraph literally is just pulling his hands away. And not just a little bit, like he's clearly pulling his hands away. The Barracuda raises his head as, and opens his mouth like he's going to come down and bite Seraph. Next shoulder, huge jaw. Probably bite a head right off if he got a good grip on it. But Seraph quickly headbutts him, clear in the throat. Ever been hit in the throat pretty hard? That'll get your attention. Barracuda loses a bit of his balance, and Seraph, being held up in the air, pulls his legs up and puts his knees against the Barracuda's chest, and with all the strength he has, hurls with his feet, right? Using the back his, against the wall, he uses his feet to push as hard as he can. And the Barracuda goes flying. Barracuda attempts to quickly get back up onto his feet, as Seraph does. Seraph, much, much faster. And he closes the space between them almost instantaneously. Now, Seraph's friends have never quite seen Seraph get to this point. If anybody, Deacon might have. Mugen has never seen this happen. Seen Seraph's fangs grow. And when I say his eyes go red, his eyes literally look like fluid blood. He has no pupil. His eyes go completely red. And if you looked at it, they'd even ripple like there's literally a, a layer of liquid blood over his eyes. It's identical to blood. And he rushes in and just begins beating them. And Barracuda falls to the ground. Every time he tries to get up, Seraph's just punching him in the sides in the head, in the back of the head, in the throat, wherever he can get a punch in. And at the, by the end of it, the Barracuda is just trying to push him away. And finally, as hard as he can, Seraph, right in the side of the jaw. Like, you imagine the man's on his hands and knees trying to push himself up. Shark man. And Seraph punches down across the side of his head. <clears throat> With enough force that the Barracuda's arms go up from him, and he just hits the ground hard. And then Seraph stands back up and just looks down at him. Barracuda rolls over. You can see there's just blood flowing out of his face. His face is already swollen up from the severe beating Seraph just gave him. And Seraph, probably a little bit, he took a couple big hits in the stomach and he took a few as well. He's clearly got some marks on him. Probably got at least a bruised rib. He knows he's got he's some pain in the side. But what he's given the Barracuda at this point was just a straight up beating. Finish it then, snarled the Barracuda. He coughs and spits blood out of his mouth. Seraph's eyes begin to glaze back over to normal and the red flows away from them and teeth go back up into his mouth. Because when he gets fangs out, like they grow, it's the whole classic vampire kind of a thing. I shall not, said Seraph. There is no need. You do want to help her. You appreciate that. Death is reserved for those who try to harm. Seraph turned and walked back to his friends, probably picking up one or two things that fell out of his pockets. We're done here, he said. And opening the door, he walks out. Everybody, like, he just walks in, we're done, and just walks out of the room. And Seraph is walking past those bullet holes with pure confidence. Because, to be honest, if someone does try to shoot him at this point, not only could he probably dodge it, he'd probably reach through one of those bullet holes and pull somebody through that. But no twangs. No fires or shots happen. And he walks out of the room, followed quickly by Andy and the others, because at this point, Seraph doesn't, have his, doesn't even care. He's just walking out, going straight across the, the, the room. 
You can imagine people look at him, the doors fling open, because Seraph is not being subtle at this moment. Push the doors open, they slam, and people are getting to look over, and Seraph comes walking out with Mugen and Deacon already standing out a little bit, and Endian chasing after him. And Endian, again, people know Endian. Endian, these three people are chasing after this guy who's just walking through this room like he doesn't see anybody there. They make their way back to the ship. And at that point, there's a discussion. What do we do next? We don't know where to go. Endian's like, I'm sorry, son. I hoped we would have better luck here. Seraph's like, no, I appreciate you trying. It wasn't on you. Endian's like, I'll make sure we're supplied. We'll head out in the morning. Again, it's late at night. We'll head out in the morning. Um, we'll head east. Go along the port, see if we can find any sign of her. Not giving up. You're not having a direct place to go, but still got, we're still, we're still going to try. And Seraph, Seraph appreciates that. Seraph and his friends return back to his room where they rest. Seraph's strong healing system, regeneration. Within a few hours, most of his bruises are just that, faint bruises. Any little cuts and such he had were sealed over. And I'm sure he has a little bit of explaining to do to Mugen. Because Mugen's like, what happened to your face and your eyes? Are you okay? Your eyes was bleeding everywhere. Like, no, no, Mugen. And he explains a little bit more. And it's probably at this point where Seraph has to have the open conversation of, hey, kind of part vampire. What's a vampire? It's a great question. I've never had to explain this to someone who's never heard of a vampire before. Because you'd think most people know what that is. Mugen would have no idea. No vampire is going to go inside of New Gully. Vampires are basically walking magic. They're not walking into a dead magic zone if they have any option. So it's not something that Fig would have had to warn him about. Fig probably warned him about a lot of stuff up there, but vampires probably not high on the list. Remember, Fig knows nothing about Draven or any of that stuff. Hasn't seen them since they literally went and fought Nylat Firemoon together. No knowledge. Reason to prepare him for that type of thing. So Mugen has to explain, you drink blood. And he's like, you drink my blood? No, I'm not going to drink your blood, Mugen. Oh, you drink Deacon's blood? And he's like, no, I'm never going to drink your blood or Deacon's blood. <laughs> no, I would never do that. The DM snickers. There's specific ways and rules that I handle that. Talks about his little magic bottle. It keeps blood from spoiling. and That's why he keeps that. Well, how you fill it up, it's probably best we don't talk about that. You're not going to fill it up from Mugen. No, you're not going to fill it up from De Deacon. No, you're not going to fill it up from Dina. No, I would never. All right, then. Don't nibble on me. I won't nibble on you. I'm not even a nibble. No, I will not nibble you, Mugen. Why, you don't think Mugen tasty? I'm sure you're tasty. You thought about it. No, I did not think about it, Mugen. Are you sure? No nibbling. There for old Deacon's just trying not to trying not to crack a smile. The next next probably little while, every time they go to bed, he, he's always getting ready for bed. Seraph would look over Moog and Moog's like <laughs> Go to sleep. <laughs> One of those kind of things. It's the morning. Still things are still praying. They've awoken by this point. They've had some rest. Seraph feels pretty much back to normal. The knock on the door was strong and rushed. He can open the door to the cabin to find one of the deckhands standing there. Captain wants you on deck immediately, he said. 
Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen quickly made their way to deck, only to be greeted by a very surprising sight. The captain stood there with the Barracuda, back in his original form, not the monster shark form. The man's face and body still showed bruises caused from the day before. By the looks of how much they'd healed, though, he must also have some form of regeneration ability. What you want, Mr. Fishy? Mugen blurted out before anyone else could speak. The Barracuda looked at the little man, his eyebrows raised. Seraph thought he looked like he was trying to decide whether or not he was going to eat him. Finally, the Barracuda shook his head and turned back to Seraph. I need to speak with you. You made your position quite clear yesterday, Seraph said stiffly. Hear him out, said Endian. Situation's changed. Seraph gave him a small nod and the Barracuda began. One of my agents arrived this morning. From the place, I sent Dina to meet the next link in the chain. A ship arrived there just over a week ago. An Armanian ship. He says a large group of men went northeast, the same direction the girl went. Somehow they found her trail. Seraph steps forward and gets right up to the front of the guy. I know you doubt me, but please, I beg you, tell me where that is. Let me get to her first, he begged. Aye, the Barracuda replied, clearly strong enough to protect her. Still even worry now. But Endian here has the fastest ship in port, and you and your friends are the best hope that she has. He was taken to a small port town of Tentacle Reef. Good folk there. A man named Damius was to escort her northeast to the city of Jacob's Rest. We was to meet there? We leave immediately, said Endian, who then began turn and began shouting out orders to the crew. The ship immediately burst into a flurry of activity. Like you can imagine that. We're leaving now. Cut the ship out of the way. You know, and people just, ah, captain's ready. And people start diving in to get everything done. Again, these are trained men. It would not take them but a minute to be prepped and ready to go. Ugh. Seraph and the Barracuda stood there looking at each other. I wish you luck, boy, he said. They should somehow manage to get their hands on her. None shall live long enough to try, Seraph replied. Barracuda reached out his hand and Seraph shook it. Two men understood each other clearly. Barracuda turned and began making his way down back to the dock. Seraph turned to talk to his friends. A moment later, he was surprised again by his name being called from the docks. Walking over to the railing, he looked down. Been a long time since I've taken a beating, the Barracuda called up from the dock. If you're ever in these waters again, look me up. I'll buy you a drink. We'll have a rematch. Turning around, the Barracuda headed back to town, his laughter echoing off the ships and shanties. Seraph smiled. He had a destination again was finally back on Dina's trail. Woe be to anyone standing between them. That's the end of the Seraph section. We're not done, though. There are some episodes where it's going to be all one group or all the other. There's going to be some episodes where it's going to be part of one, part of the other. This is definitely not a story that it's going to be all Seraph for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then we find out what artists and friends. Um, 
these two stories are going on at the same time. And so I want to be telling that story at the same time because things that they act upon, things that, uh, ways that they may affect the world around them could likely also affect what the other group runs into, right? What if one of these group comes through a town that the other group has already been through? That's just an example. Anzo says, nothing better than a fight to really know someone. <laughs> it's very true. And Queen of the Sea says, I was on the edge of my seat for most of the section. Really? Oh, wow. I, I was hoping folks would enjoy it. I uh, Again, it was very very written. A lot of that was written with a little bit of my improv in there. But wait. We're not done yet. About that time. Raven had more to read. I hope you guys will like this next section of what we're going to be stepping into next. And for this next little bit, it'll be all reading. Long, long ago, before even the oldest living elves were born, there was a great kingdom. Centuries of war had finally ended with all the lands under one banner. A time of peace and prosperity began. People were happy. Over the next few hundred years, the title of king was passed on to each next generation. As it did, cracks would begin to form in relationships. New factions and alliances were created. With each generation, the king lost more control. Barons, guilds, rogues. In the year of 632 PS, the kingdom came under the rule of a good king. He was not a great king, nor was he a bad king. People were content. The king sired six children, four boys and two girls. And one day the youngest child, a son, came to the king and requested permission to join the church. He had heard the call of the gods in his heart, and wished to walk the path of a cleric. As the youngest, he had barely any claim to the throne, and having a prince in the church would be very favored by the people. So the king granted the prince's request. The young man relocated to the city's temple. Following the path of the life, he loved his life there, though he rarely left the temple grounds, except for visiting his family. The young man learned he had a talent and a love of smithing. He spent most of his time at the forge making decorations and idols for the temple, as well as armor and weapons for the Templars. His was a peaceful life, spent much in solitude at his forge, but he was happy. One day a messenger arrived at the temple, and the young man was summoned. The king had passed away in his sleep the night before. There would be the customary seven days of mourning, then the eldest son would be crowned king. The young man was saddened by the loss of his father, so he retired into his forge and began crafting a gift for the new king, the new king-to-be. The next five days were spent in hard work and solitude, as the young man poured his heart, soul, and grief into the project. At night he barely had the strength to climb into his bed awaking the next morning and starting again. It was late on the fifth night after the king had died when the young man was awoken 
by banging on his door. Opening it, he was shocked to find the archbishop himself standing there. Something horrible had happened, and the young man was quickly escorted down to his forge. The halls outside were filled with soldiers bearing his family's crest, and mixed within were several servants he recognized from the castle. Stepping inside his smithy, he was startled to see his older brother, the second-born child. A cleric of healing was seeing the wounds. Seeing the young man, the older brother ordered everyone else out. Once they were alone, he spoke of the attack on the royal family that had happened that night. A rebel faction bent on taking over the kingdom had killed all of their siblings and their families. If it had not been for a group of loyal servants and soldiers, this elder brother would have been killed as well. The two brothers embraced, tears falling from their eyes. For a moment, the elder told the young man he would see that the temple was protected, as they were the last living children. Second-born, title would go to him. He was honest about their chances. Their enemy had large numbers. Many of their allies were already dead, and it was almost impossible to know who to trust. The young man wanted to join the elder brother, wanted to take the field and avenge their murdered family. His brothers and sisters, his nephews and nieces, the children, oh God's the children. The young man was no warrior. He had never been trained in the arts of war. What could he do? What help could he give? The young man fell to his knees, the tears flowing freely from his eyes in anger, despair. He screamed so loud and so strong the elder brother took a step back. He screamed to the skies, praying to the heavens and begging the gods for strength, begging for the power to set things right, pleading for a way to help his brother defend their home, aching for a way to bring back the light to push away the horrible darkness that even now shattered over their land. So pure was his anguish, and so strong was his faith. His prayers were righteous, and the gods heard him. Kneeling there in the ash and dirt, a feeling of peace and love washed over him and before him appeared a glowing apparition, like a star that had fallen from the night sky to land directly before him. The light from this being was warm and yet blinding, yet the young man could not look away. A voice, one that was feminine and soft, yet rang like the chorus of a thousand angels, spoke to him. You have prayed, and I have heard. You have asked, so I have come. You do not seek power with which to rule, nor do you se seek wealth for greed or spite. You have asked for a way to help your people to fight back against the darkness. I will offer you what you've asked, yet you must know such things come at a cost, and great sacrifices must be made. Are you truly willing to do what must be done? and save your people. Yes, cried the young man. I will gladly pay any price. I will make any sacrifice. I seek only the peace of the light. 
A wave of love washed over the young man, and for the first time, he saw her face, her tears. Then raise your hammer, my child, goddess said, and prepare the forge. There's great work to be done. Hours later, when the door to the forge finally opened, the elder brother stepped out to meet his frightened people. In his hands he held the gift his brother had been making that week. He held his brother's scepter. It was beautifully crafted and glowed with the power of the light. He gathered his warriors and set out, and over the next two years fought a bloody war for the heart of the kingdom, the power of the magical scepter leading them to victory after victory. Finally, the day came when the kingdom once again was to know peace, and the elder brother took his rightful place on the throne as the last living child of the fallen king. For you see, when he stepped from the forge that day, holding the scepter of power in his hand, he did so alone, leaving only an empty forge behind him, and the young man who forged it was never again. That's that. Is this the same scepter? Yep. That's the history of the scepter. The friends all sat in the girls' room at the inn they were staying at. All four were shocked silent by the story Artis had just shared. Artis was the only one able to see or hear Quintius, so she'd had to repeat his words to the group. How do we know we can trust it? asked Ram. It may be lying. Very true, replied Artis. Quintius agreed to answer any question we have, or any test we might require. The nature of the scepter is such that any spell will enable will be unable to ascertain any information. So that's what she's saying. We can cast. He says you cast any spell you like. It's not going to help you. The friends all couldn't help but look to Petal. They could see she was deep in thought, and as their only mage, she might be the only person to solve this enigma. After a moment, Petal reached out her hand, and Artis handed her the scepter. She cast a couple spells to attempt to identify its powers and abilities and its origin. But as they'd been warned, she was unable to learn anything other than it was in fact enchanted. Why is it chosen Artis? asked Kip. From what you've said, it has been, uh, from what is said, it's been in your home your whole life. From what little I've heard of your mother, she's a great leader. Why didn't it pick her? Quintius was able to hear the others, so he answered, and Artis relayed his words. I want you to understand that Quintius is standing there, or sitting on the bed, or leaning against the wall. Artis sees him. Artis can reach out and touch him. He has a physical form to her when he wants to, but no one else can see him. While he has a physical form, if he sits on the bed, they don't see like a butt print. I want to clarify that. If he walks up, like he, if he walks up and opens the window, if he used power, so if he can do that, then the window might open. But he's, you know, he doesn't have a, just a general physical. He's not going to leave footprints. Kind of a thing. You know, walking through smoke, he's not going to make the smoke move. It's just, that's not how it works. But Artis sees him as if he's standing there like a regular person. And Quintius can hear everything they're saying. He's right there. He sees the scepter in Petal's hand and hears Kip's question. I did not choose, nor have I ever chosen. I am a servant of the light, 
and I am awoken to serve who I am directed. There have been many long periods where I have slumbered. I awoke the day Artis was born. So the gods speak to you? asked Maeve. Not directly, Quintius replied. And when I'm saying he's replying, Artis is saying this one. I am given knowledge as it is needed, though it is on a rare occasion. Such it was that I learned of the danger to the north and the location of your friends. So to explain how he, it's not like he, some, like a god appears and says, know this information. He just knows it. He's saying, like, bam, suddenly I know where Seraph's going. Oop, that's a bad, bam, I know that there's trouble in the north. I gotta tell Artis. Knowledge is given to him. So he's like a physical ghost-like dude and Menandra is just a telepathic voice. That is very correct. Menandra has no physical form. She is a telepathic voice that no one hears except for Michael unless somebody else merged with it. So the time that Dandy merged with it when they were fighting uh, Draven's brother, she heard it. You know, hear that voice. But Menandra's linked to one person. This is the kind of the same way where this one, he literally has a physical form when he needs to. Um, but no one else sees it but her. But like, she, if you'll remember back in Serenity, she ran into him and almost knocked him over. She physically hit him. He was physical to her. Uh, where was I? Okay. Okay, here we go. On rare occasions, such it was that I learned of the danger to the north and the location of your friends. We finally know where they are, said Petal. I'd hate to be this close only to lose them again. Nor would I, replied Artis. What Quintius is saying is true, though. There may be a bigger threat to our friends and our family's lives, one that we may be able to stop before it comes too late. You're a cleric of the truth, Artis said Ran, who sounded a bit irritated. Why would such an artifact of the light be given to you? I mean, no disrespect. Surely there are clerics of the light who would be worthy. I asked the same question, said Artis, smiling. He told me that many beings serve the light, regardless of their faith. That in our own ways, each one of us is doing so. Which is true, right? The light is the overall... Well, the cleric of light is, is Manara. The light is the force of good. Darkness is the force of evil, right? So there are multiple gods that fall under good gods. Those, and some of the neutral ones, are fighting for the light. Cleric of healing, you're still part of the light. Praise the light is something that you'd say if you're any good cleric. Because the light is that. It's, it's still the force of goodness that exists within the world that each of the gods tap into, of which Manara, Menandra, Manara, the goddess of light, I, I, I did that one to myself without realizing it. Very close. Uh, she is the overall central presence of that, the embodiment of the light. Everyone sat quiet a moment. Fine, sat quiet for a moment. Finally, it was Petal who spoke first, and it was clear the sadness in her voice. If we are to abandon searching for the boys, do we at least know what we would face in the north? Some, replied Artis. Quintius said that there are different entities currently looking to harm them and others. He says we must move against them before they grow too powerful to stop and cause too much harm. But why do they want to hurt Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen? asked Ran. Surely they've never met. 
So it's at this point that these folks are about to be introduced to something that they knew nothing about. And Quintius tells them that he, that right now in the world, the gods are playing a game. A very dangerous game. Very high stakes. What little he knows of it, there are people that have been chosen by the gods to represent them in this game. Point says, some of you are chosen in this way. But there are also those chosen by forces who might work against us. All I know is Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen right now are the center of this conflict. One way or another, all of these individuals, all these beings or forces that have been chosen or gathered by the different gods that are involving themselves, because maybe not all gods care. A god of business and trade may not care and not have been actively involved. Just because you're God doesn't mean you want to be involved. Point that out. But he says, yes, this game is going on, and somehow Seraph's at the middle of it. He doesn't know the specifics. He only knows what little information he's been given. And then he explains the concept of being touched by a god. We've talked about this early on, and I'm going to recap it for folks who may have not heard this. In the moment when... A life sparks into existence. In that tiny microsecond, sometimes that soul will be felt or sensed by a god. And the god will know that that soul has the potential to affect the world in ways more than the average person would. And that, if the god decides to reach out and touch that soul, what they do is unlock that person's full potential. Good or bad. The god doesn't know that. They know that somehow that soul will have an effect on that god or his followers. He doesn't know if it's good or bad. I may be giving full potential to someone that's going to be a thorn in my side. The gods don't always choose to do that. Very often they may. It doesn't happen that common. And Quintius explains, Artis, Seraph, Maeve, Petal, even Ran are part of that group, just as some of their parents were. Juan, not a touched individual, but Ran is. Kip, not a touched person. Kip is a bard. Nobody touches a bard. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I joke. You guys know I. I make fun of bards all the time. But no, Kip is an ally that's joined on here, but he wasn't one of the those chosen. He's not that. He wasn't chosen by the god of music of, to, to come out here and play jams while they're saving the world. Person in the group. doesn't mean he can't already be a great person who helps and does stuff. You don't have to have your soul touched to have a great effect on the world. That chance of is increased by that. Many people who could rule and be kings and all that, may have never been touched at all. So he explains that to them and he explains that Seraph is in the middle and some people may want to kill him, harm him, kidnap him, lock him away, imprison him. There are people out there who would want to do things to stop Seraph from something. Though they know not what. He knows not what. The kids themselves are part of the game. And at that point, of course, the kids looking at each other have to be like, do our parents know? 
Do our parents know that we're part of this game? That Seraph, this thing is going on? Do they have any idea we're in the middle of this? Quintius can only say that's information I don't have. I don't know. I've been given little to no information. I mean, I know of your family just from being in your serenity for years and years and years. Oh, hello, Ancient One. I'm so sorry I didn't see that pop up. <laughs> hello. Thanks for coming by. <laughs> but um, he says, I don't know if the parents know. Maeve says, I knew. Her friends are like, what? What do you mean you know? The friends have heard that the story of how Maeve met Zorn, the god of truth. In that moment, she, her path changed from being a cleric to a paladin. She would have went through that conversation, but back when that happened, I stressed that she did not tell Artis that Zorn made the comment Artists will be my voice. You will be my fist. In the events that are to come. Because I didn't know exactly what he meant by that. And I didn't say you were in, you know, because I felt that was his place. But in, in the context we're in right now, that makes sense. We were chosen to represent him. You to be his voice, me to be his fist. What that means, I don't know. But we were chosen by him in this situation to represent I guess his side of what he's trying to do to help or hurt, depending on what this game is and what the end end uh, end goal is, because Quintius does not know that he doesn't know anything about Seraph's choice or any of that kind of stuff. He just knows Seraph's involved. Now, this information from Maeve really, really makes a difference in this conversation. Because you can imagine everybody else be like, listen, this magical scepter sitting here is telling us all this crazy stuff. But if Maeve's like, you know, I knew that. <laughs> it's true. What he's saying makes total sense. Rest of the friends, that's a lot easier for them to get on board with that. Because let's be honest, the God of Truth probably didn't lie to her. I mean, you know, that's, that's just not how he rolls. Petal, at that point, decides to ask probably the best question. All right, Magical Scepter guy, what can you do? What are your powers? What You're supposed to be helpful? From your story, you helped win battles. What exactly is it you can do? And Quintius replies, My abilities will be given to you. As I am as I as the light desires it. So basically, says I have abilities. The light will tell me when I'm to let you know what they are. Which you can imagine really frustrates this group. Okay, so I'm gonna carry around this magic stick. It's a scepter. It's thin. It's something a king would hold. It's not for combat. I want to stress that this is not something you would beat somebody over the head with. It is not a weapon. Scepter like a king or queen would hold on to. So they've got their crown and their scepter and their cape and they sit on their throne. It's meant to be decorative. It's meant to be, when it was originally crafted, it was meant to be a gift to the new king to be a symbol of his position. Right? <laughs> plus five, plus five. Great question. Yeah, not, not, not a combat. It doesn't mean you can't hit somebody with it. But it's not designed for combat by any means. Bees, they're, they're a little frustrated he can't be more specific. Um, but they do ask, what, what about this issue in the north then? Do we know anything about that? Quintius says that he knows little. 
But there is a kingdom named Caradon, and it is in danger. But in that area, there's at least one person who's been touched or chosen for this thing that is a threat to the rest of the world and your friends. I don't know what, how, but they're there and they're growing and that's a problem. And if we don't stop that, it's going to spread outside of Caradon and affect other things, places. Now, Gritty says he's going to help when he can. You know what I mean? When, when, when information is given to him, he'll be there. And there are some basic abilities that he'll probably tell artists about pretty quickly. As we need them. But uh, he says, basically, you're going to have to take your ship and you're going to have to go up river. It's a big river. You're not going to have any problems. You're going to go all the way up north until you reach a town called Sturgeon's Cove. A little bay area at the top, and that is the border of Caradon. From there, you'll have to get off the ship and you'll have to head east into the kingdom itself. I am only to know that at that point, I will have more information. I apologize. I do not have it now. The friends were all unhappy at the thought of abandoning their quest to find Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen. But after discussing it, they all agreed that if there was in fact a danger to their friends and their home, they could not leave it unanswered. With little choice, they agreed to go to the north. Maeve and Petal set off to tell Lyman of the change of destination, to make sure they were prepared to go. Rain and Kip would see the supplies while well, artists spoke to the innkeeper and patrons about their destination, get what information she could. Uh, again, this river is a big thing of trade. They've got to at least know something about it. As the group left, Artif was left alone with Quintius. I'm not sure I believe all of this, Artist told him flatly. I assure you, I've told you the truth. I've no doubt you have, she snapped. She snapped back. But there's something you're not telling me. There are many things I've not told, he said, smiling. If you need me, you have only to speak my name. As long as you're within 500 feet of my physical form, I will hear you. I must also warn you that I can only see what you see within 10 feet and what is in the, and, and what is in the view of my physical form. I cannot see through solid objects. I would recommend keeping me with you. So he's saying... If you're standing somewhere with a septar, I can walk 10 feet away of it and tell you what I see around a corner. But I can't look through walls. I don't have x-ray vision. I can't tell you something. I can't do that. But if you're within 500 feet of me, I can talk to you. And if I'm in another room, I can explain what I see around me. But that's the extent of, of that type of communication ability. So I would recommend you keeping me, keeping me with you. Sure, said Artis, like a golden jewel scepter on my belt won't cause me any problems, she said, rolling her eyes. And appeared as Quintius, Quintius chuckled as his form faded till it was gone. Artis stared down at the scepter for a moment before picking it up and hesitantly putting it into her belt. She made a mental note to make sure she covered the thing while changing. She was going to have to have a chat with Quintius about boundaries. With a sigh, she opened the door to go see what she could learn about the kingdom of Caradon. Her life had just got way more complicated. And that, my friends, is the last page of this book. Started this book many, many years ago. And there was a very large space when I stopped reading. But 
to give you an idea where this book started, um, it started where with the introduction of the Black Rose. This book is finally finished. I will set it over there with the stack of other ones. And I've moved on to purple. <laughs> I have a black, and I have a blue, and I had a green. I had several binders before that. I try to get a different color every time. But I've already been writing, and I have more. We're not going to talk about that today, because we're right at 10 o'clock, and that's where I, I was hoping we'd get to that point. I can say that next episode, two weeks from today, uh, we will be starting exactly where we left off, with artists and friends going north, and the journey to get to Caradon. So... That's what we're going to be dealing with next uh, for probably most, if not the entire next episode. There's a lot I have to get set up and do with them in a short period of time. And we know that Seraph is off there racing after Dina. We can let him do that for a little while while we're figuring out what's going on over here. I mean, I already know, but for you guys to figure it out. So, well, that went exactly two hours. I can't believe... How well that worked. Um, so that's this week's episode. Hopefully the sound was better. Again, I said at the beginning, I'd made some adjustments so it'll stop stealing the last word of some of the things I say. Um, uh, let's see. Queen of Sand, new book time. Always fun. Sounds fun. Forward to it. Still playing catch up. Oh yeah, understandable. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it'd be awesome if you'd click like. Um, might also be awesome if you'd consider giving the channel a subscribe or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, if you're over on iTunes or Spotify, it would be very cool if you would consider uh, giving us a follow there. If you have an iTunes or Spotify account and you're not already, please consider going over there and giving uh, the audio podcast. It's under the same name, Merged Worlds. Uh, give it a follow. Um, if you'd like to leave it a review and five stars, I sure as hell would appreciate it. Definitely helps uh, get the podcast in front of more eyes. And as I've always said, I just want to tell my story to as many people as I can. Uh, but yeah, I think we're uh, that, that one. That episode went well. So, uh, well, you've had some time to think on it. Think on it for a little while. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to me uh, here in the comments uh, on YouTube, or if you'd like to reach out to me on our Discord channel, where you can find a link to that on my website, onlydraven.com. Join our Discord. There's a thread specifically for Merge Worlds. If you have any questions about what happened here, or uh, you have any feedback, this episode was very read-heavy. Um... Probably more so than some... The only the last read-heavy episode, this heavy, was back when we found out who the man in the hat is. I'm not going to go into more details because some people haven't read that. But you guys remember the day. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts. This compared to a day that's more improv or vice versa. I, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that in the comments uh, here or Spotify, iTunes, or over on our Discord. I'd love to know. But that is where we're going to call ourselves today. Again, thank you guys for coming. I really do appreciate it. You guys know how much this story means to me and having the opportunity to share it to people, uh, especially folks who really seem to be enjoying it, it really means a lot to me. So thank you for giving me that opportunity and for giving me an audience to continue writing this story because I'm having so much fun doing so. I'll be back here in two weeks on Thursday for the next episode. Next Thursday is Behind the Dice. Um, where we may look into maybe even drawing a map or getting some of the details of Shark Tooth Harbor drawn. Uh, we may look into our mapping program and talk see about actually building a city. 
I haven't used that facet of the map yet. So we'll do that next Thursday. So, um, yeah, I think that's going to do me. Thank you all so much for coming. Love every single damn one of you. I appreciate your being here. And I really do hope you have a great rest of your week and weekend. And I hope I get to see you again very soon. All right. Thank you for visiting Merge Worlds. You guys have a great night.